Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, nominated by President Bill Clinton and appointed to the court in 1994, recently announced that he will be retiring from the bench at the end of the term and after almost 28 years as a justice on the US Supreme Court. When Breyer joined the court, there was a solid liberal block of three liberal justices, two moderately conservative justices who sometimes joined with the liberal justices, and a solid conservative block of three justices. Breyer will be leaving a court that looks very different today, one with six very conservative justices and three liberal justices. While Breyer's replacement will not change the ideological makeup of the court, this, appoint this appointment will be very historic and long overdue. While the president on his campaign trail, then candidate Joe Biden, pledged to appoint a black woman justice if elected president, a pledge that no doubt helped him win the White House. Sorry, El Shadri, I'm gonna start that paragraph again with the while. While on the presidential campaign trail, then candidate Joe, Joe Biden pledged to appoint a black woman justice if elected president. That pledge no doubt helped him win the White House. And now President Joe Biden has indicated that he will fulfill his promise and nominate a black woman to fill Justice Breyer's seat when he retires this summer. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about Justice Breyer's retirement and the importance of having a black female Supreme Court justice. And we'll also talk about some of the amazing black women on President Biden's shortlist. We are delighted to have joining us this evening for our discussion, Patricia Timmons Goodson. Justice Timmons Goodson was the first African-American woman to join the North Carolina Supreme Court where she served from 2006 to 2012. We're also delighted to have joining, joining us our colleague, Don Corbett. Don Corbett is a constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. It's good to be with you. Good to see everybody. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start our discussion with um, having folks kind of share their thoughts on Justice Breyer, um, his long tenure on the court and his impending retirement. So Justice Timmons Goodson, let's start with you. Uh, yes, I don't, a lot has already been written uh, and said about Justice Breyer and I'm sure a lot more will be, will be said. Um, few can dispute um, just what a moderating, comprehensive, clear thinking uh, justice that he was. And 
I can already say his presence will be sorely missed. Thank you for that. And Professor Corbett, what are your yes, thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, thank you. My, um, I, I think he's probably best characterized as, I think Professor, uh, Justice Kim Goodson said, a, a moderate liberal. Uh, he was pretty reliable liberal, reliably liberal, I think, on issues like affirmative action and abortion. But I think he was also a little bit more conservative when it came to cases involving the free exercise clause, the establishment clause, so you know, religion-based cases. I think he was very keenly aware of the real-world consequences of the court's decisions, as opposed to the tendency of today's court, which I think feels like it leans much more into you know, whatever your ideological framework is in terms of interpreting the law. But, uh, you know, very pragmatic, super smart, nothing really catty about his opinions. I, I think history is going to treat him very, very well. Absolutely. Um, now, I said moderating influence. I, I wasn't uh, claiming uh, that he was a moderate, but um, a moderating uh, influence. He, as you uh, have pointed out, uh, looked at uh, the issues before the court very pragmatically. You know, it's easy to, this is the letter of the law and uh, the law takes us uh, to this point without um, giving any thought to just what um, the consequences and the, the realistic, um, you know, consequence of, of the decision. And, and I think that he did do that. And both of you mentioned him being very, you know, pragmatic, thoughtful. You know, he is making a decision to retire at a time when there's a Democratic president. There, there's still, you know, he's still early in the early part of his tenure as as president. Um, what are your thoughts about Breyer making the decision to retire now? And 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 this is a this is consequential, especially in light of the fact that Justice Ginsburg uh, unfortunately died while on the bench and then her replacement was named by a Republican president. So you just could you comment on your thoughts about him making the decision to retire at this moment in time? Um, I'll start. Uh, for me, this is yet another example of his pragmatism. Keep in mind that he has served on the court since Justice Ginsburg's departure. And of course he served prior to that. So he sees uh, in ways uh, that, that few others do just what um, the consequence of uh, the departure of Justice Ginsburg uh, and the replacement that has come forward. And so um, I think that that experience coupled with the fact that he's been on the court almost 30 years and has had um, a tremendous uh, professional uh, career, um, you know, I think that he just decided it was time uh, for him to leave. And I think it's also impossible to ignore that he's leaving in a very different time in terms of the judicial nominations than it was when he came in. When he when he came in in 94, 
God, it's hard to believe it was almost 30 years ago. It's disappointing and depressing, but it was. And but when he, he was he was voted in by a vote of like 87 to eight or 87 to nine. I think mm-hmm. those days are over. I don't think we're ever gonna see that again. And when you look at the Senate being basically a 50-50 Senate, we have some older Democratic senators whose health is, I think a gentleman just had a stroke not too long ago. And when you, if you're in that situation and you have Republican governors and they can appoint uh, who they want until the next election. So I think the balance of power, lowercase p, is very tenuous. And I think he probably looked around and saw what happened with uh, Justice Ginsburg and said, you know, now maybe is the time for me to do this if I want someone of a similar ilk to replace me. So you wish it, it wasn't like that, right? I mean, I know that there were some pretty uh, aggressive efforts by certain wings of the party to to get him to think about retiring much earlier than that. But as Justice Timmons Goodson said, it just feels super pragmatic, and I think it aligns with uh, his temperament as a judge and, and and the tone of his opinions. Absolutely. Well, I think the other part of that is that uh, the, the 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 impact that he has had in the past probably wasn't something that was going to continue uh, because in the past, I would kind of describe him as a, uh, a bridge builder that he was able to uh, cross the lines and to pull in uh, the reluctant uh, moderate conservatives on the court. And he played uh, an influence in them reaching out and stretching their wings in some of the opinions that uh, he wrote, uh, did a lot of concurring uh, opinions, which uh, you know was really helpful in forming uh, the precedents that we now uh, rely upon. But uh, in this court, where there is uh, what I describe as an ultra-conservative uh, right wing that's controlling the court, uh, his possibility of uh, influencing anyone uh, would be uh, very slim. Uh, so, you know, with the, the three more recent uh, appointments, there's just no way. Uh, and then with the uh, Alito and uh, Thomas, uh, they have already proven uh, to be uh, far to uh, the right, so far to the right that uh, they probably <laughs> none existed. But, uh, you know, I, I think that his, his, his influence was waning. And so this was a good time for him to go, in addition to the political considerations of it being timely in that the uh, uh, Democratic president would have an opportunity to replace him. Yeah, he is definitely leaving his mark on the court and, um, you know, which raises this next question. He is he is leaving. and And so there is a space for some new blood on the court. And as um, President Biden has has indicated he will be um, nominating a black woman. Before we talk about the importance of having a black woman on the Supreme Court, like the presence, that presence, can you all share your thoughts about um, your feelings on President Biden saying, you know, like outright, I will be selecting a black woman. And and I asked this question, and as I asked this question, or as you're thinking about it, you know, we know that President Johnson nominated uh, Thurgood Marshall. 
and it, it wasn't pre well, it may have been predetermined in terms of his thinking, but there wasn't some specific statement saying, I will be nominating a black man for this vacancy. Um, what are your thoughts about President Biden saying for this particular seat? Because there's been, you know, criticism, of course, by some that, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, the the uh, short list or, or any list, right? It shouldn't be limited to just Black women because there are other people who are qualified. Can you all just share your thoughts on the propriety of Justice Biden saying the only people that I am considering for this position will be Black women? Justice Timmons Goodson, can we start with you? Sure. I, like you, have heard the criticism. I have absolutely no problem. Uh, with what um, the president did. You know, some make it uh, sound as if this is the first time anything like this has ever happened. Um, perhaps folks have lost sight of the fact that uh, President Reagan um, announced ahead of time that he, uh, ahead of his election, that he indeed would be appointing a woman uh, to the court. And so it, it's been done before. And um, when you consider the fact that Black women, that's a demographic that has never in the history of the court um, sat on that court, I have absolutely no, no, problem, um, no problem with it. Now, some uh, continue to complain, but keep in mind uh, the arguments about there not being uh, a pool of qualified um, Black women to choose from, that is um, most outdated and outmoded. Uh, we have plenty of women from which to, uh, to choose. And I applaud the president um, for, for what he has said. Yeah, I would concur 100%. I, I don't remember the exact timing of when he first announced it. I want to say it was during the, the presidential debates uh, when he was running for the nomination. Uh, so it was bold then, uh, long overdue, but still bold. And while I'm trying not to be too cynical in my older age, I have no doubt that he saw the political uh, assistance in making such a claim based on, you know, who makes up such a huge part of the Democratic base. But to his credit, he has stuck by that. He hasn't wavered not one bit. And when asked about it repeatedly since becoming president, he has repeatedly stuck by those guns. So it's, it's long, long overdue. Uh, the criticism is not surprising. I, I am a little bit surprised that they didn't at least wait until the nominee was appointed or announced before they began the attacking, because unfortunately now with this kind of broad-based attack, you're really attacking all Black women, right? It's, it, which, which is another conversation in and of itself. But I, like I said, he's to be applauded. It will be a historic announcement, and it will add tremendously to whatever presidential legacy he ends up with when he leaves office. Well, you know, since we have... Um... Justice Timon Goodson uh, with us, who served initially on the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals, and then uh, subsequently uh, on the North Carolina Supreme Court as an African-American woman. Uh, can you kind of talk about uh, the particular problems that uh, African-American women have encountered serving with white men, basically, uh, on the court. And you, you served at a time where you were dealing with conservative 
uh, judges and justices. And uh, so kind of give us a little quick little glimpse into, you know, what it is like uh, to serve in that kind of uh, environment because you did it well. Well, I thank you for saying that. Um, I will tell you that um, any uh, woman of color in that situation knows and understands upfront uh, that you must at all times be prepared. And um, that that preparation uh, will carry the day often uh, for you. You cannot, could not come into that conference room uh, without uh, being prepared and you needed to know the smallest of details uh, because there, um, you would be able to, uh, to use that information. I remember fondly, I say fondly now because of the way that I had turned out, but um, uh, often the way the courts work is that um, each appellate judge has an opportunity to speak. And so uh, you offer your opinion on the reasoning and uh, how and why a case should be decided a certain way. And um, I, um, on a number of occasions, can recall uh, folks going around after I've spoken and then say the same thing that I said, and that's it. I, 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 that's it. That's exactly what we need to do. Um, I, I laughed while uh, one of my colleagues one time, uh, instead of just shooting me in a look, actually said, now what was the difference in this and what Pat said a half hour ago? And so, you know, I just kind of chuckle, but you, you get used to it and you keep right on working. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, former Patricia Timmons Goodson and NCCU law professor Don Corbett about the U.S. Supreme Court's retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer and the importance of having a Black female replace him on the high court. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. 
And we've been talking this hour about changes that are coming to the United States Supreme Court. Justice Stephen Breyer, who has been on the court for almost 28 years, has announced his plan to retire at the end of this term. And President Joe Biden has reaffirmed his commitment to replace him with a Black woman. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, Patricia Timmons Goodson, and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett. Um, Justice Timmons Goodson, right before the break, you were talking about your experience being um, an African-American woman on the North Carolina Court of Appeals, the North Carolina Supreme Court, and uh, just the dynamics that, that you have to navigate in that space. Can you talk about the importance of having diversity on our courts? You know, diversity in terms of gender, diversity in terms of, of race, diversity in terms of background, and how you think um, you being um, a diverse individual kind of contributed to the court, contributed to the view of the court, contributed to the decisions of the court, just by nature of you being um, a black woman. Sure, uh, Professor uh, Dawson, uh, we are all uh, the sum of our life's experiences. And so I was a black woman, a mother, uh, a wife, uh, a golfer, uh, a, a Southern woman, um, you know, the product of a military family, uh, you know, and so I brought all of those experiences uh, to the court the mother of two black sons. And um, just as I brought those experiences to the court, um, other justices brought their experiences. But what we experience when every, when all of the judges come from the same background, it's almost like being in an echo chamber. You know, <laughs> you're, they're, they're, they're talking to one another, but it's the, the same basic experience. When you bring in um, individuals with uh, with different backgrounds, that increases the likelihood that you're going to hear uh, different perspectives. And I think in order for uh, you to really assess um, an issue, uh, you need to come at it from uh, different backgrounds and um, from different places. And that's what the diversity of experience brings um, to, to, to it. Um, I'm going to uh, give you an example. One of the first cases that I was involved in upon joining the Supreme Court of North Carolina, I can't tell you the name of the case, but um, uh, it came out of Charlotte and uh, it just seemed, based on my experience, that the individual was stopped for driving while black. And so um, that's what I let them know that I saw that as. And so I believe you will find uh, that's the first time that there was a reference to driving while black in a Supreme Court opinion. Now, the case wasn't decided the way that I thought that it should be decided, but I thought it was significant um, for the court to make the statement that driving while black was not something um, that was permitted in the state of North Carolina. Uh, I'm confident uh, when I say that that language would not have been in that opinion, but for my presence and my um, experience on, on, on the court. 
And so that, that's something else for us to consider and perhaps to talk a moment or two about. There are ways that um, diverse experiences impact uh, the court. It may not change the ultimate decision of the court, but it often um, will affect and change the language that is used, um, how narrowly the opinion is drafted. There are ways um, to make a difference that uh, may not come um, to mind initially. And so along that, that same line, um, Professor Corbett, can you comment on how a black female justice on the US Supreme Court can have that same type of, of impact because we've got, you know, we, we already have, um, you know, three women on the court, uh, but not a black woman. How might, might the dynamics of having a black woman help inform the court and help lead to more thoughtful decisions? I, I can't add a whole lot to what Justice Timmons Goodson has already said. I think you'll have, it, it at least has the potential to have the same kind of impact that she just described. Now, the question is, will those experiences be appreciated and valued in a way that obviously will have been unprecedented before? And not just in, in terms of the, the arguments and subsequent decisions come from, but even the confirmation process. Uh, will that be valued by senators in the question? Like, I, I think back to the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, who was the most recent appointee to the court. And uh, they, the Republicans who were questioning her fell all over themselves to talk about how wonderful it was that she was a mother and she was balancing being a mom and a career and she had all these beautiful children. And clearly there was value shown to her life experience during that process. Uh, I am curious to see whether they extend the same courtesies to whoever the nominee is, who will also bring a similar set of values and experiences. So anytime you open the door a little bit wider, it can't help but be a good thing. And uh, from everything I understand about the court, they are incredibly collegial with one another, even if they do not always agree on the law. Uh, so even though it's just a President Joyner mentioned earlier, we don't have a lot of people up there trying to build bridges now. <laughs> My hope is that they will at least uh, hear that perspective and consider it uh, as a part of, uh, of their work going forward. Following up on, on what you've just said, Professor uh, Corbett, uh, the fact that uh, during the confirmation hearing, um, all of this information about um, the, the new justice's uh, background and, and her experiences and uh, being a mother and juggling and, and all of that, that's why we're seeing um, already uh, written in the newspapers stories about the backgrounds of the leading candidates. And so you're able to get a window uh, into their, um, their lives and how they came up and perhaps what we might expect at, from them on the court as a result of, uh, of that service. And so I believe it's um, uh, Judge um, Brown Jackson, uh, I read a story not long ago about uh, an uncle of hers that was incarcerated for drug offenses and how that has influenced and impacted um, her outlook um, on, on issues. Um, you know, you, you, you hear them talking about uh, Judge J. Mich uh, Michelle Child's background, uh, the public school 
um, education and um, you know married and, and with a child and all of that. So um, I believe that folks have come to understand that it is important as we're assessing uh, these individuals that we look at their backgrounds. Well, you know, we, ha we have a lot of outstanding uh, women in the, uh, in the pool who ought to be uh, considered. Um, but when I look at uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, and some of the dissents that uh, she has already offered, uh, which basically describes her as a kind of uh, truth teller, uh, that uh, she is ending up in the uh, minority. Uh, her dissent isn't uh, necessarily going to win the day, but they uh, create a, uh, a framework for future uh, decisions. And uh, I would think that whomever is appointed uh, is going to occupy a role or a position very similar to uh, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, do you favor at this point the appointment of someone who is more uh, bridge builder type or someone who is of the uh, truth teller uh, genre uh, that uh, is uh, there to uh, help to develop uh, a uh, philosophy that can be picked up uh, when uh, there is a change in the complexion of the uh, court, the political complexion of the court. Uh, so at this stage, which one would you favor? Well, um, I understand very clearly the argument um, that can be made that um, the individual that occupies this seat is going to be in the minority and probably for a long time. And so perhaps that uh, bows in favor of truth teller. If you're not going to be able to prevail, uh, you know, go ahead and put it out there. You know, let, let, let's tell the entire um, range of the discussion. And that's often what dissents are. And, you know, each uh, appellate judge has to resolve for himself or herself uh, just what is required in order to make them um, write a dissenting opinion. And so um, it'll be interesting to see uh, where we come out. But let me say, Professor Joyner, um, we don't know anything. Um, even if we knew the name of the individual that was going to be confirmed, uh, that's about all we would know. Uh, even with an understanding of their background, that still doesn't tell you how, when you get down to it, when you face the particular facts of a, of a case, just how it is that they're going to come down. And so, um, or, or, or how they will write uh, for the court. Okay. Professor Corbett, you're not gonna take a stab at uh, whether you want a truth teller or- uh... <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about it. I think I would prefer a truth telling bid bridge builder, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't, explain that one. <laughs> So, so I think for me, it depends on context, right? So I think by the, for instance, by the acceptance of this most recent uh, case out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina concerning race and admissions, well, I think the only reason they accepted that case is so they could strike Grutter down. So in that case, I would want the justice to be 
a truth teller and, and burn it down to the degree that you can. Uh, but I think when it comes to other issues, like I think there's also a healthy appetite on the court for the reduction and maybe even elimination of power of administrative agencies. And that's one that you don't have to blow up. You know, you can, you can be a bridge builder there to maybe reduce the power uh, in such a way that, that concerns some conservative folk, but not eliminate altogether. So I think it just depends on the issue as opposed to, you know, one particular approach for every single individual issue. Well, we know that the court is going to be faced with some very explosive issues. Uh, they've already calendared uh, abortion, uh, affirmative action, uh, clearly uh, voters' rights, uh, the uh, VRA voters' rights amendment, uh, all of those uh, very explosive issues will be uh, before the, uh, the court. Uh, and it is anticipated that, uh, that this, I guess, judicial philosophy, which favors states' rights over the, the power of the central government, is going to play a key role in, uh, in those uh, decisions. Uh, which of, well, I was gonna ask uh, you to, to pick and choose between uh, uh, people, but talk about the importance of having the right person in the place to deal with or counter what is going to uh, likely occur from the conservative justices with respect to, uh, to those uh, very volatile issues. If I'm understanding your, uh, your question uh, correctly, I would say uh, to you that um, the individuals that are being uh, considered, they're, they're all relatively young. And uh, so that makes for um, growth, you know, so it may be a while before we really appreciate what we actually have in the justice, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody's born to be a justice on the United States Supreme Court. You must learn that role. I don't care how experienced you are as a jurist, you've got to learn that role. And so um, I don't believe that we will instantly know what we have. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's going to take. Um, a number of cases over uh, a period of time uh, for that justice to solidify in her her mind and uh, her approach to her work. And if I could add, I, I, I think it's exactly right. And I think it's just even the even if you are someone who has come from federal district court or the California Supreme Court, which governs a ton of people, this is still the United States Supreme Court. And no matter who you are, how credentialed you are, it's going to take you time to find your footing, to find your place, and to find what your whether your judicial voice in that context should be the same as it was previously. So I think, as Justice Timmons Goodson said, it just takes time, and we don't know until we know. Uh, so I don't know that Justice Sotomayor's truth telling today, as we see it, if you look at some of her opinions when she first came on the bench, I don't think you saw quite the same thing. Absolutely. But as, as, as she's evolved over time and seen the direction of the court, it's clear she wants to be on record as, no, I need to tell these people some truth. 
even if I'm down seven two. <laughs> so, so, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds, especially given the uniqueness of the background of many of the women who are under consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I want to just touch on before we talk about some of the amazing women on the the short list, um, the the impact of having a black woman on the court upon young people, right? So, you know, we kind of follow the court, we look at the opinions, we know the justices, we follow the politics of the court. Most um, folks in the United States don't follow it that closely. Um, We mentioned kind of these hot button issues, but they probably make up maybe 10% of the cases that the court deals with. Most of us aren't familiar with the, the vast majority of cases that the court deals with. But having a black woman appointed to the court, everyone will know who this person is, whether they follow the court or not. I remember when I was in grade school and Sandra Day O'Connor was selected to be the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court. I didn't know what the Supreme Court was at the time. I didn't know anything about it, but I knew it was a big deal that Sandra Day O'Connor was, you know, appointed to the court. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break, but but when we come back, if you two could just comment really briefly on just the impact visually for particularly young people, black and brown young people, black and brown women, to have a black woman on the court. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking this hour about the impending retirement of Justice Stevens Breyer. Uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Patricia Timmons-Goodson and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And during the next segment, we look forward to talking about some of these absolutely impressive women uh, who are being considered by President Joe Biden to fill Justice Breyer's seat. We hope you stay with us. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.com. WNCU.org. My name is Reginald Witz II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are talking about the uh, consequences retirement of Justice Breyer and uh, the, uh, President Biden's decision uh, to appoint an African-American woman as the uh, next member of the uh, North uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court. And our guests this evening are 
Justice uh, Patricia Timmons Goodson, who was the first African-American female to serve on the North Carolina Supreme Court, and uh, clearly someone who should be on the short list for uh, President Biden to uh, consider. And uh, Don Corbett, who is the constitutional law professor at North Carolina uh, Central University School of Law. And if he was a woman, he should be on that short list as well. Uh, but I certainly want to uh, commend all of the outstanding uh, African-American uh, women uh, that uh, should make up the list, so that would be a part of this list. And I guess my question now as we continue this discussion and everybody wants to know, uh, can you just name some of the people that uh, you consider uh, to be worthy of this uh, designation? Uh, to be a member of the uh, of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So, uh, Justice uh, Tim and Goodson, we'll start with you since uh, you've been in that fire uh, before and you know uh, the uh, uh, structure and the uh, strength of uh, many of these uh, candidates. So, uh, who would be in your list of people that uh, uh, President Biden should consider? Professor Joyner, certainly uh, my list would include the uh, three that we hear the most frequently um, of, uh, and that's uh, Justice Kruger uh, that sits on the California Supreme Court, um, Judge J. Michelle Childs, who is a U.S. District Judge down in uh, the state of uh, South Carolina, and Judge uh, Brown Jackson, who sits on the D.C. Uh, circuit. Um, each of uh, those women bring an incredible amount of experience, um, the kinds of experience, professional experience that we have uh, seen in other uh, justices uh, on the court, and they would be. Uh, but I'll go ahead and uh, add here in North Carolina, you know, we have on our Supreme Court um, of North Carolina, um, I, I think a, a, a candidate, um, uh, Justice Anita Earls could, could uh, and would, would certainly um, fit the bill. And uh, our own uh, Chief Jeff, former Chief Justice uh, Sherry Beasley, uh, of course, was among the names um, that came out uh, the last time there was a vacancy uh, and stuff. And so those are just a, a few. Um, but let me say that Back in 1981, when Sandra Day O'Connor was uh, nominated and, and confirmed for the United States Supreme Court, if you looked around the state of North Carolina um, at that time, um, there were only about three um, female judges. And so I'm talking about uh, Judge Elrita Alexander uh, Ralston, uh, who went on the district court in 1968. Um, our own um, Angela Bryant uh, in 1979 um, began as a deputy commissioner on the Industrial Commission. Uh, in 1980, uh, Judge Karen Shields, Karen Galloway now, um, was a district court judge. But those were the only women um, in the judiciary, Black women in the judiciary of North Carolina uh, at the time that uh, Senator Day O'Connor was nominated. And I think that you could look around the country and you would find a similar situation, a similar yeah. uh, lack of um, 
um, black women in the judiciary. But y'all, that is not where we are right now. Mm, um, no. We have now, uh, you know, around this country, uh, on our state and our federal courts, um, a large pool of women that could serve. And so there, there's no lack of, uh, of names and, and, and qualified individuals to fill that uh, position at this time. Professor Corbin. Yes, sir. I, I, I think uh, Justice Timmons Goodson has hit on uh, most of it. I would add just a couple of people to the list. One would be Wilhelmina Wright, who is mm -hmm. currently serving on the district court, I think in Minnesota. I think she's the only justice in Minnesota history to serve on the state district court, the their version of the Court of Appeals, and then the Minnesota Supreme Court. So I think she'd be an excellent choice. And there's one more uh, woman who's kind of a non-traditional choice. She's an academic. Her name is Melissa Murray. She's a law professor at uh, NYU, I believe, and a nationally recognized expert on reproductive rights. Uh, she clerked for Justice Sotomayor, I think would also be a little bit non-traditional in some senses, uh, given what has historically come before the body for approval. But I think she would also be an excellent choice. It's really fishing out of a barrel. You can't, you can't lose with any of them. You really can't. Yeah. So, so it's uh, just wonderful to see them with uh, such uh, wonderful accomplishments behind them. And, and uh, I'm excited to see them be able to put, put it out publicly for the nation to see during the confirmation hearings, mm -hmm. whoever it is. Uh, you're right, Professor Corbett. Um, out of this experience, regardless of who is selected, uh, the nation has been exposed to um, uh, the, the number uh, of, of black women currently serving in the judiciary. And so, um, you know, hopefully that'll inspire even more um, mm -hmm. black women uh, to, to seek that as a professional option. Well, let me just add a couple more names that probably on the non-traditional list, uh, since they're not in the uh, judiciary at this point or, uh, but I would uh, add to that, uh, Cheryl Ife, yes, uh, with the NAACP uh, uh, Legal Defense Fund. And I think it would really be a great uh, uh, effort to consider uh, Anita Hill uh, as, uh, as a nominee, uh, both from the perspective of uh, President Biden's past history as well as uh, that of the history of uh, sitting uh, Associate Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. So uh, uh, I, I, would, I would just throw their names out there as long shots, but certainly worthy of, uh, of consideration. Uh, you know, they, they are certainly worthy, but we have entered a time when um, the decision makers have decided that age uh, is a factor. And that is due in large uh, measure, I believe, because of uh, the difficulty and um, the intractability of, of, of the process. And so um, it's so hard to get somebody on. It looks like they're working as hard as they can to get them as young as they can so that they will be there uh, for uh, you know, a good while. And um, you know we will we will see how that uh, you know how that 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 works out. But those two would be wonderful uh, candidates. And it probably bears uh, mentioning that while all of the, in today's um, 
time we're selecting folks with so much with judicial experience, that certainly has not always been the case. Yeah. You know? Uh, and stuff. And so, you know, they've come from large law firms, never having any, uh, you know, they've come from uh, academia. And so uh, this prior judicial experience is a, a fairly uh, new requirement. So changing the rules as we go. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And to that point about age, you know, most folks, I think Justice Ginsburg was 59, 60 when she was you know, appointed to the bench, um, to the Supreme Court bench. And, and you know, she had a long, uh, amazing, um, you know, tenure as a Supreme Court and, and very influential um, Supreme Court term. And so it really is unfortunate that we're limiting a strong pool of applicants because they have, you know, some amazing experience. So Sherilyn Ifill, um, I think she's 59. Uh, when we think about Justice Earls, um, I mean, and just so many, and it's it's so unfortunate that we're limiting um, based on age because there's a lot that these individuals have gained between, you know, 50 and 60, and and that's experience that you won't necessarily have on on the court. Um, Justice Timmons gets into, you, you mentioned age, you also mentioned the fact that uh, now candidates um, or nominees, potential nominees, they are now coming from the judiciary, people who are currently serving as judges, which has not always been the case. What are other things that a president considers when selecting Supreme Court nominees? And, and Professor Corbett, you can you can jump in here as well. So we've talked about age, uh, serving on the bench. Um. You know, in the past, whether folks would admit it or not, um, there did uh, or does appear to be a um, a thought that they had to come from um, our most prestigious or the, the institutions that are considered our most prestigious law schools. And so it's no accident, I, I believe, that uh, Harvard and Yale, <laughs> you know, everybody uh, from there. And um, I believe that two of our um, more recent uh, justices even came out of the same high school, which invites folks to say, <laughs> um, that, that it must be a club that you've got to be a member of in order to, uh, you know, to get there. But in the past, whether folks will admit it or not, I do believe uh, that there has been um, a tendency to look uh, to graduates of the most, uh, well, law schools considered the most prestigious. To, to Justice Timmons Goodson's point, I think eight of the current nine sitting justices graduated from either Harvard or Yale. And, and in looking at the backgrounds of some of the women who are being considered now, I, I, I believe that we can do better than that. I think that there's a whole lot of other schools out there that produce wonderful grads, right? But I'm torn on this one because several of the people up for consideration also went to either Harvard or Yale or both. Yeah. So I feel like, okay, if, we're, if, we, if we wanna legitimize them in the eyes of larger, which this shit shouldn't need to happen, right? But if we're holding up a dollar for dollar comparison between current justices and justices under consideration, 
then I think unfortunately that Harvard Yale thing is going to matter. Uh, so maybe the next time we can consider somebody who went to Central or like Justice Tim is good, so I think he went to Carolina uh, for, for law school. You know, those are all excellent schools out there, but we've leaned into uh, the, the, the process has clearly leaned into uh, the Ivy League schools in the world. And I don't know if that's always a productive thing. Uh, uh, nominees who have clerked for the Supreme Court also seems to be something that, that weighs in yes. their favor. And that's relatively new as well. And so um, yeah. Judge Brown ja Jackson, of course, she you know clerked for Justice Breyer. What are your thoughts about um, that being one of the criterion that presidents seem to at least be mindful of? Well, um, you know, I, I guess you're going to always have some kind of standard or um, you should always have some kind of standard. Um, but as I, and I can understand how that would be great training for being a justice, having actually done the legal research and um, assisting in the writing and um, conversing with the the justice and, and seeing how judges think, you know. Um, so I see how we get there. Um, I don't necessarily like it, um, yeah. but there is no but there is no denying um, that that would help an individual uh, do the work that they're the important work that they're being called upon to do. Yeah, I agree completely. I I, I don't know if it's. I don't know that it's necessary, but certainly it would seem like it would lessen the learning curve for the new judge and the new environment. I think Justice uh, Justice Kruger also clerked at the Supreme Court, as did Professor Murray at NYU. I think she clerked for Justice Sotomayor. So, how much weight you should give it, you know, I think we could probably debate about that. But but clearly, I think if one of those women is 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 uh, selected, I think they'll feel like maybe there's an nth more degree of comfort just by knowing how the process works. Uh, add to that uh, the fact that Justice Kruger also was in the Solicitor General's office and I think was the, um, I can't remember if they call him first principal or the person immediately below the, um, the Solicitor General. She has argued, I believe I read uh, 10 or 12 cases before the Supreme Court. I'm here to tell you that um, it's no small task to stand up and to argue a case before the justices um, of any high court. And for her to have done that um, at least 10 times is, is quite an achievement. And I, and I, I, I read that she uh, handled herself very ably. And so that, that has to be um, you know, an advantage. Um, and I can see how that might be valued. Mm -hmm. Which was one well, of the and, big and rem remember, keep in mind too that um, Justice Thurgood Marshall was in the Solicitor General's office. That used to be one of the ways that folks got to the Supreme Court. You know mm -hmm. that gaining that experience was um, was important. So, uh, yeah, and I was going to say just just that uh, that uh, Justice uh, Marshall uh, came up through that uh, through that route and had a short stint as a, uh, a circuit court, uh, not circuit, yeah, court of appeal uh, judge before he was elevated to the, uh, to the Supreme Court. But uh, I am just amazed at uh, the many choices that are there and uh, anguish over the attacks 
that uh, have been directed toward all African-American women as if none of them meet the uh, high standards necessary to become a member of this court. So uh, we're pushing and we're pushing. May, may I add very quickly that if nothing else, um, we should be uh, taking from all that's going on that uh, if you have a goal of sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, you probably need to be intentional you know, about your professional career. I don't think it's any accident that these folks have clerked um, for, for folks. I don't think it's an accident that uh, we have one that has argued cases before the, the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, we've got to uh, take a look at all of this and then um, see what boxes, uh, you know, our young people that we want to help um, promote for these, uh, for that service to, uh, to see. All right. Well, that is a good note to end on um, this, you know, and just to kind of bring it full circle, right? The, the benefit of having a Black woman on the Supreme Court will open up the possibilities in the minds of, of our young people, right? And so they can start thinking about how is it that I get to that point? Because I, I know that I can, because I see someone that looks like me sitting in that Black robe on that bench. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, we know that uh, President Biden has indicated he will be naming his nominee um, within the next couple of weeks. And so we are going to uh, go ahead and put a, a pin in both of your caps to let you know we're going to be tapping you on the shoulder to have you come back on the show because we'll have more to talk about once that wonderful, amazing Black woman is nominated. But we'd like to thank our guests, former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Patricia Timmons Goodson and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett. And we appreciate them sharing this hour with us as we talked about Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement and, of course, the importance of having a Black female replace him on the court. And, of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagloreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.